This evening's scripture reading will be from Psalm 14, 1-3, which reads, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who, who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Good evening. It is a pleasure to be together once again this Lord's Day. We're thankful for those who have joined us again tonight, and we're looking forward to engaging in another study from the Word of God. A couple of weeks ago, we continued our ongoing series throughout this year on looking at some of the things that might be beneficial and helpful in discussing and with an atheist about the scriptures, about the existence of God. And we looked at what is called the moral argument and how that is used as an argument to prove logically the existence of God. Now, of course, we would not be able to show anyone, voila, there's God. You can see Him and now you must believe in Him. We have to show through reasonableness, through logic, and through thinking that it is reasonable and rational to believe in God. And so that is something that proves to be difficult on many different ways and many different levels. And how does someone go about trying to prove the logical, rational, reasonableness belief in God? A God that cannot be seen or observed in any direct way. We live in a time where we go by the scientific method. That after we see something and we test it and we make observations, then we draw conclusions, don't we? That's usually how we operate in our day and age. But that has not always been the way that mankind has thought. We have oftentimes had to use philosophy or logic and reason to try to deduce certain things as true. And that is oftentimes how we need to go about showing the existence of God. That it is reasonable to believe in God. A God that people believe exists and pray to and perceive as the one being that is a cause of events in our lives is, I believe, something that is completely rational. But how would we go about proving that? Something that we mentioned a few weeks ago was that we can know every single verse in the Bible. We can know every single verse in the Bible that would show us that God is there, that God is a, an omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient God, and that He is this being who exists in eternity. We could go to every single verse in Scripture, and that might help us feel a great deal of confidence in the existence of God. But if we were talking to someone who does not believe in the Bible, then that may not help them as much. Now, I think certainly we need to bring the Bible into the conversation. We need to introduce the Scriptures to someone who does not believe in the Scriptures, and who does not even believe in God. We need to introduce them to the Word of God 
quickly, I believe. But we live in a day and an age in which many, many people refuse to accept the existence of God and they dismiss it. That belief in God from the atheist viewpoint is irrational and it's illogical. Ernest Hemingway once said, all thinking men are atheists. Which, of course, implies that it is those who do not think that they are the ones who believe in God. Only the ones who think and have a brain, they're the ones who would be atheists. They have reached moral superiority and intellectual superiority as they would think. Faith in God is mocked as just blind acceptance of some myth and fable made up by ancient people who are less informed and ignorant of the many scientific truths that we moderns have readily available to us. We might see that in this quote here where it says, Science, in the broadest sense, includes all reasonable claims to knowledge about ourselves and the world. If there were good reasons to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin or that Muhammad flew to heaven on a winged horse, these beliefs would necessarily form part of our rational description of the universe. He goes on, faith is nothing more than the license that religious people give one another to believe such propositions when reasons fail. When we find reliable ways to make human beings more loving, less fearful, and genuinely enraptured by the fact of our appearance in the cosmos, we will have no need for divisive religious myths. That was by a man named Sam Harris. It appeared in an article on the Huffington Post on their website. And the name of the article in the blog that he writes is science must destroy religion. He lets it out right there, doesn't he? Which side he's taking. But notice just what he says. He says that science is the answer. Religion is not. And that faith is nothing more than just this license to believe irrational things whenever reason fails. And yet I believe that we need to question someone like this and their assertions of what they say. Another uh, gentleman said, sometimes I say that faith is an assertion of unreasonable conviction, which is assumed without reason and defended against all reason. By that I always clarify that evidence is the only reason anyone should believe anything. I cite apologetics as the practice of systematically making up excuses to dismiss any and all counter-arguments, which that shows a, a rational flaw, I believe, in his thinking, that he does not want to accept anything that would counter his position, doesn't it? It shows that he is disingenuous. But he goes on, in order to rationalize how one could still hold an unsupported and thus unwarranted position, and I cite the statement of faith posted by so many fundamentalist organizations to demonstrate how faith is assumed independent of evidence and regardless of it. Now, I have no doubt that there are people who would profess to believe in the Bible. And I have encountered Christians, members of the Lord's church, who have 
tended to side on this area where they have been like, I don't need evidence to believe. That, that's unnecessary because the Bible says it. I had a Bible class one time where we were going through and we were looking at some of the archaeological and historical evidence that supported the Bible as being true. And I had some opposition in that class from members of the Lord's church where they said, we don't need that because you don't need to prove the Bible is true. The Bible is true, and so we just need to accept it and believe it. And so you had this circular reasoning at that point. And I, I said, look, I believe the Bible. I'm not trying to undermine the Scriptures. But I, I told them, I said, you're not, you're not going to have a, a productive discussion with an atheist at all. If you cannot reason from other evidences to show them that the Bible is God's Word or that faith in God is reasonable. And as we explored the moral argument for the existence of God, that is only but one of what would be termed the classical arguments for God's existence. There are several other arguments, and we're going to look at three of them this evening that I believe are worth our consideration. And so I hope that you will be willing to open up your, your minds and open up God's Word and we think about some of these things and we might evaluate them as we continue to look in light of Scripture this evening. There is what some philosophers would call the ontological argument for the existence of God. And that is one that I believe is probably the most difficult one that we will look at tonight. Because... Many people don't really like the argument. I think it is an effective argument, but it is one that can be a little bit more abstract than anything. And so this evening, as we think about this particular argument, you're going to have to kind of uh, elevate your head into the clouds a little bit. We're going to have to be willing to uh, be thinking a little bit more abstractly and not so concretely but this is an argument that has been iterated for over a millennia, and it's worth our consideration. Anselm of Canterbury articulated the ontological argument in defense of God's existence in 1078. And ontology is simply the study of the nature of being, or the nature of existence. And it's a branch of metaphysics and philosophy that deals with the nature of existence, becoming, and reality. And just as way of illustration, I think this would help us understand kind of where this is coming from in the field of ontology and how this might uh, play out into discussing something about the existence of God. If I were to talk to you about this really neat thing I have, and I have this thing at home, it's a five-sided triangle. I'm not getting any looks. I'm, oh, well, okay, there's the look. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, Jeannie. <clears throat> That's the look I was needing right there. What is a five-sided triangle? Because that is not something that can exist, right? Because a triangle, by definition, and by its existence, is how many sides? Three. A five-sided triangle cannot exist. We have to change our understanding of what a triangle is or we have to redefine terms 
or we have to be able to understand that this is something that's not a triangle. In the word and the concept of triangle, it can only have three sides. Similarly, if we imagine a being that might or might not exist, then you are not imagining God since that concept of God demands existence. That's what Anselm was trying to argue and articulate when he said, and assuredly, and that which is nothing greater can be conceived can not exist in the understanding alone. Then it can be conceived to exist in reality which is greater. He's saying that whatever you can dream up or think about, If you can dream of it, if you can think about it, it cannot exist just in your imagination. It has to be a reality. And you might think, well, that, Sean, you got to be real careful with that kind of argument. And I would agree. You got to be careful about that. Because it may sound as if this argument proves very little. Because we live in a world where we can turn on the TV, we can see Star Wars, Star Trek, we can see uh, Lord of the Rings, we can see all sorts of things like Harry Potter, and we can imagine all these worlds that might possibly exist, but just because I can envision it and I can dream of it and I can think about it, that doesn't prove that it actually really exists, right? We have to have that discussion with our children, don't we? That just as much as I, whenever I was a kid, and I loved Superman, I loved watching the Christopher Reeve Superman movies, And I would put on my red cape and I'd go around the house thinking I could fly, but that didn't mean I could really fly, right? As much as that I would love if I could, I can't. So it may sound like this doesn't really prove anything. Just because you can imagine something doesn't mean it does exist. But what Anselm was actually trying to articulate here is that when an atheist, someone who is denying the existence of God, when they talk about God and they are trying to demonstrate points why you cannot believe in God, he is saying, by your very definition of who God is and that you're trying to deny it, that actually shows that God must exist in some reality, in some form. And if we have a proper understanding of who God is, then he says... He must exist in all forms, in all worlds, in all reality. And so his, the strength of his argument here is that the atheist denial of the concept of God actually demands the existence of God. Or else they are someone who is proving or trying to uphold an absurdity like that five-sided triangle that I brought up. René Descartes, in 1629 to 1649, he presented some of the same ideas. He said, he began with this logical syllogism in which he said, premise one, I have an idea of a supremely perfect being. That is, a being having all perfections. His second premise is necessary existence is a perfection. That is, that this being that he has must exist. That if there is this supreme, perfect being that has all these perfections, well, his existence is a perfection in and of itself. And so the conclusion is, therefore, a supremely perfect being, God, exists. There might be some things that come up in this argument that 
sounds, well, I don't know. You know, it's like, we can we think of something that does not exist? That really becomes a question, doesn't it? Is it possible for us to think of something that does not exist? And I'm sure you can be coming up with a lot of things, right? You can read about hobbits and uh, elves and we can see, we can think about unicorns or wookies. And none of these are real creatures. But they do exist in fantasy, right? But we understand that that's fantasy, it's not real. But we could still imagine it as if it were real. We have movies, we have cinema, we have pictures and drawings that we can imagine these things as if they might exist. And so it might not be the real world, but it is a possible world as far as our imagination goes. And that appears to be the weakness in this argument. And so you might be thinking, well, thanks a lot, Sean. You've just deduced God to being the equivalent of Frodo Baggins or Chewbacca. Not quite. Because that takes us to the second question. What does it mean to exist? What does it mean to exist? I'm a big Star Wars fan, so if you'll... Uh, bear with me. If I were to describe a Wookiee or Chewbacca, for instance, in Star Wars, and if you don't know anything about Star Wars, then I hope that this, this will probably actually prove the point even better. I might try to describe him as this big walking carpet. I compare a fantasy character to something that is real, something that you know, don't I? That's the only way that I can actually convey that idea, isn't it? That I have to take something that is not real and I have to go to something that is real. And that is how we can come to know something. And so that brings, that kind of takes away that whole fantasy thing. Just because I can imagine it, it doesn't really exist because I have to go to something that is real to be able to prove it or to describe it. And that leads us to the third question in this argument that we have to think about. What is God? How do we define God? How would you go about trying to define God? That's something that I would challenge you to go home and think about tonight. Or if you can come up with the answer in one night, then good. You're better off than I am. Think about it this week. How would you define God? How would you describe God? I think God is a perfect being in His existence. He is a necessary being. And what we mean by a necessary being is that He is not dependent on someone or something else for His existence. He is perfectly independent. That God was not a created being. And then He is also eternal. That is having no beginning and no end. He is a maximally great being. He is great. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. 
And he is objectively, morally perfect. That's how I would define God. Now, where did all those ideas come from? I believe I could prove all of those things from Scripture. But when you think about the throughout the stream of time and throughout history, where did this idea come from? Well, only three monotheistic religions in the world have this kind of understanding of God. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And you think about what how throughout history in the ancient people, how they perceived God through polytheism and through uh, paganism and the practices of how they viewed God. You just look at the Greek mythologies concerning Zeus or Hercules and their other gods and the gods of, uh, of Rome and all the pagan philosophies and mythos and the stories are filled of, with their gods of them being lying liars, they're fornicators, they're adulterers, they're cheaters, they're, they steal, they're thieves. Moral perfection is not an important consideration for most people. In religion that is man-made, in fact, throughout history and throughout the span of this world, religion is actually trying to be manipulated by man to approve our sin more often than not. Which should indicate something to us. That this idea of who God is, that's a pretty unique view. It's not something that we would just come up with on our own. So monotheism is what considers God to be this maximally great being. And the thrust behind the ontological argument is this. If the possibility of this maximally great being is thought of in the minds of human beings, then he exists in some possible world. He exists in some way. And yet, he is maximally great. Therefore, He must actually exist in every possible world and in the real world. One of the opponents of Anselm, who first is kind of given a lot of credit for developing this argument, his name was Guanilo, an 11th century opponent of Anselm. And he said, well, this is all a bunch of phooey. He said, this is a bunch of nonsense that I could come up with this this." the greatest conceivable island, right? And he said, just because I can imagine it, it doesn't mean it actually exists. And so he was trying to show that this is an absurd argument. But the problem with that is, if I were to ask you what you like in a vacation destination, if you got to go to this island for a week, you might want you know, the tropical kind of experience. You might want to be on an island that there are uh, coconuts and there's sandy white beaches. Maybe you want uh, a, lot of, a, a lot of things that you can go out and do. 
But then I might want to go on a very isolated island where there is no one around, where it's just built up by jungle and all sorts of wildlife and creatures. And what I'm trying to illustrate with this, and the problem with that greatest conceivable island idea is that a great island may mean different things to different people. You may want a tropical paradise, and I want to swing on uh, the, the vines like Tarzan. And the problem with that is it's very subjective. But this idea of God right here, it's not subjective, is it? Because I am recognizing that He is a perfect, morally perfect and objective God who has given His law, who I recognize that I must obey and I must submit to. So God is not equivalent to a unicorn or Frodo or Chewbacca. Now this may not be very convincing to you. I don't want to make this sound like this is something that you have to actually present to your friends or your neighbors, but this is something that I believe does show us that God can exist from a logical place. That whenever we define God, when we come to understand who God is and how we might express it, then if we can define those terms, then our thoughts it should prove to us that there is a God who exists. However, there are other arguments that you might be thankful for that we can look at. And the second one is called the cosmological argument. Aristotle is a Greek philosopher who wrote about the mover of all the motion in the universe. All the motion in the universe. He said in his book on physics, there must be an immortal, unchanging being ultimately responsible for all wholeness and orderliness in the sensible world. And this is a Greek philosopher, a pagan, a Muslim. He wrote in the ninth century, Every being which begins has a cause for its beginning. Now the world is a being which begins, therefore it possesses a cause for its beginning. Thomas Aquinas, a Christian philosopher and apologist, and he always was a thinker who was trying to prove the existence of God, uh, among other things, he spoke of God as the unmoved mover, the prime mover, an uncaused cause and a necessary being. Even Albert Einstein once said, I see at the beginning of the cosmic road, not eternal energy or matter, not inscrutable fate, not a fortuitous conflux of primordial elements, not the great unknown, but the Lord God Almighty. And throughout all the searching uh, for questions and scientific reason. He says at the beginning there is someone that is responsible for causing it all. The Bible obviously teaches this, doesn't it? In Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It affirms that God created everything. That God is the reason that everything that is here in our realm, in our existence, our universe, that God is the cause behind it. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4 said, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now we understand that a house doesn't just... I may never see a builder actually on the premises building a house, but I know when a house is being built that it didn't just happen that way. That it just didn't come out of thin air. Someone put it together. Someone built it. And the Bible is filled with proofs like that. And the very fact that we live in this universe, the cosmos itself, it proves that there is a God. You think about what this is trying to express. In many ways, someone might ask, well, who made God? And that's nothing but a smokescreen. Because what the cosmological argument here is stating is that the cosmos, the world, and its universe of existence must have a cause. We're not arguing that everything has a cause. Because God is an eternal being. He does not have a cause. What we're saying is that everything in this universe, in this world, and our realm of existence, that there is a cause behind everything. God is the first cause. He is self-existent. He is eternal with no beginning and no end. He is divine. And even if we were to grant that God had a cause, then it would just always be push, pushing back. In logic, there is what is called infinite regress. And it's where you can... Infinity, it's, it's not actual, right? I mean, it's just a concept that we have. There is no way that... You, you cannot do a, a formula, a mathematic formula, where you plug in infinity because that's not an actual number, right? There's always one more. And in logic, infinite regress is an impossibility because you can always come up with this infinite number and you never actually get to the cause of something. But what we're suggesting is that in this world, there is... There's a cause to everything. You think about argument, what is called the argument from motion. This table has wheels. And it's moving after I pushed it, doesn't it? It's still moving. You know, it's not now, but it's moving. Is it just doing that on its own? Of course not. When we see motion, we know that something caused that to happen. When we see, we, we recognize that there is a cause behind it. And so motion and causation, they are logical parts of this argument that we need to consider. That God is the one who is the uncaused cause, but He is the eternal eternal, immaterial, timeless, omniscient, and omnipotent being 
who set everything into motion. And God is the most logical explanation behind it all. The principle of Occam's razor is that entities should not be multiplied unnecessarily. And one that is just a lot of terminology to say, look for the simplest explanation first. Look for the simplest explanation first. What's simpler? Saying that there is one being who set everything into motion, who has all power, or, or that everything came into existence and being over billions of years, and it had to evolve, and things had to die out, and things that there was survival of the fittest, and that certain things could not survive, and so after there was a series of adaptations and uh, evolutions, that there would be all these changes in these beings, and then finally we we've reached it. And now we have it. Which one's the simplest explanation? From a philosophical standpoint, it would be believe in God. Dear friends, it's not irresponsible. It's not illogical. It's not irrational to accept the premise that God exists. And anyone that would tell you otherwise is a fool. There's the argument from contingency. And this argues that we are contingent beings. You just look around and we are contingent beings, aren't we? That every one of us here, we are what would be classified as a contingent being. If my mom and dad did not meet in Evening Shade, Arkansas, and my dad offered my mom a, a hot Mountain Dew that had been in his car all day, I'm not here. <laughs> I am contingent upon that meeting, aren't I? And my mom saying yes. <laughs> I'm contingent upon that. Every one of us, we have that kind of story. But then, if there is a cause for everything, there must be what would be called a necessary being. And we've already used that terminology to describe God. That God, He is not a contingent being. That God exists alone by Himself, that He is not dependent upon anyone for His own being. And contingency, if you wanted to carry that all the way back, how many generations of those kinds of stories of that hot Mountain Dew or whatever it might be, how many contingencies could we come up? It'd lead us to that illogical place of infinite regress, wouldn't it? There'd be all sorts of things. So how did everything come into existence? Well, there had to be a cause behind it. A necessary being that set everything in order. And then you have the argument from degrees where we categorize things as good, better, or best. Or we categorize things as bad, worse, and worse of all. In life, we uphold honesty as better than trickery. Courtesy is better than rudeness. Love is better than hate. Generosity is better than selfishness. Kindness is better than spitefulness. 
And we have this in life. A plant is considered less than an animal, right? Like a dog. I bet you treat your dog, if you have a dog or a cat, not against cats necessarily, but if you, I bet you treat your dogs and your cats a little bit better than you treat your plant, right? I'm I'm terrible at watering plants and I don't have a green thumb. I have a brown thumb. But I feed my dogs. Because we, we tend to see that their life is more valuable on some level than a plant is. But then whenever it comes to, if I had to choose between feeding my dogs or feeding my kids, you know who I'm choosing, right? Feeding my kids. Because there are degrees in life. And that should uphold this fact that there is something even above us. That there is the existence of God. That He is the expression of all good traits, moral virtues. He is the ultimate expression of truth. He is the ultimate expression of life. And just as fire gives off heat, the closer that we are to God, the more vibrant and zealous we become looking and expressing ourselves to be more like God. I believe that's the whole point of what Jesus is trying to accomplish in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew the 5th chapter and in verse 48, when Jesus sees talking about loving your neighbor as yourself and praying for your enemies and things like that that seem very contrary to the way that we would order normally think, what He says is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That the more that you act like God, the more you're going to look like God. And we shouldn't want to have this idea where we are seeking to become better than who we are today. Thank you. So, this is all proving that we that God exists in some way, that there is a reasonable, rational explanation for the existence of God. And I believe the argument from the cosmos is a powerful articulation for faith in God as a logical and rational choice. And the last argument here is the argument from teleology, which is actually going to be the whole third point, the teleological argument. In Psalm 19, in Psalm 19, and in verse 1, David wrote, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. That we look around, and we see the universe, we see the created material, and we know that it came from design. It did not happen by accident. And that's what the teleological argument is. It looks at the end and asks, how did it get here? What's the purpose behind it? What caused this? And so it's in a lot of ways related to the cosmological argument. It's sort of a a sub- Part of that argument, but the teleological argument actually can become considered its own argument because 
What it does, it sees the effect and searches for the cause. In the teleological argument, it comes from the Greek word teleos, which it means the end of something or the completed area that we're looking at. And so this argument looks at the created material world and asks about its purpose. How did it come here? What caused it? If I were to come by your house and I saw a car that does not belong to you there in your driveway, I don't assume that a cow drove it there. I don't assume that a dog drove it there. I assume that a person drove it there. Right? I look at the end result and I make some deductions backwards that would be implied. It just saying, well, it just appeared here. It wasn't here yesterday. It, it, I've been, you know, how many of us have those junk piles around the house? That we'd love it if all that junk just collected up over time and voila, something new came out of it. We know that that doesn't happen. The teleological argument upholds the premise that there is design in what exists. That there is evidence of design in throughout nature and in the universe in general. And that is an effect that is observed and that design provides evidence of a designer. Therefore, God is the designer of the universe and its essential cause. He must exist. We understand that in every aspect of life. And yet, Darwinian evolution would have us believe that as long as you pile up all the right materials over time, then it's just going to develop. It's going to evolve. And if you need to help it out a little bit, then just go set off uh, some TNT and boom, you get a big bang and it's all going to be there completed. That everything has just popped into existence after an explosion of random matter, and then it has all happened like some great accident. And yet, what that, even if that is right for a moment, how did all those materials get there over time? Where do they come from? This is where I got fed up with college in biology whenever they said, well, we don't know where life came from, but we think it might have come from aliens bringing life over here. That's when I'm like, why am I paying for this class? Evolution doesn't have an answer for where did life come from. It can only get it all the way back to its smallest form. And even then, it doesn't have an answer for where it came from. I'm going to have to continue on here, but what I believe in the teleological argument that is really beneficial is that we are introduced to what would be called irreducibly complex systems 
that exist in our world that only make sense if there were a designer. And you might be thinking, what is an irreducibly complex system? It's not, it doesn't have to be that complex. Think of a mousetrap. How many parts are on that mousetrap? There's several different components, right? But you take that spring out. Is it going to work? Nope. It's going to be useless, right? That's an irreducibly complex system. You remove part of it and it doesn't work anymore. It's useless. And that's, there are several things that would try to, I think, help us understand what an irreducibly complex system is. Uh, Michael Behe in Darwin's Black Box, he said, an irreducibly complex system cannot be produced directly that is, by continuously improving the initial function which continues to work by the same mechanism. So he's saying evolution doesn't work here. It doesn't have an answer for this. He goes on, by slight successive modifications of a precursor system, because any precursor to an irreducibly complex system that is missing a part is by definition non-functional. Remove the spring out of the mousetrap and it doesn't work, right? That's what he's saying here. And so he says it would have to arise as an integrated unit in one fell swoop for natural selection to have anything to act on. And that's something that is not allowed in Darwinian evolution. And so what are some irreducibly complex systems? Think about blood clotting. If I had a carton of milk right here and I took a knife and put a hole in that. What's going to happen to that milk? It's all going to pour out, right? But what if I prick my finger with that knife? What's going to happen? Am I going to lose all my blood? You know, if I'm, if I, unless I have a problem with my blood, it's going to start clotting, isn't it? It's going to stop. How did that happen? Well, there's a lot that we could get into with how that happens, but it is a multi-step process known as coagulation cascade, and it involves many different proteins and chemical reactions that happen just like that. That cascade occurs in a chain reaction with one step leading to the next. There are 10 different proteins or coagulation factors that are part of the process and chain reaction. And if you remove any of the steps in the chain, clotting does not occur. Or if a component in the chain was missing, that could turn the entire bloodstream into a solid mass. Either way, you're going to end up dead. Gradual development through natural events would not explain blood clotting. DNA. When Watson and Crick discovered DNA in 1953, they showed yet another complex biological structure. DNA and its double helix of sugar phosphates linked together with base pairs contain the building blocks of life in our very genetic code. You know, when we go to a library and we pick up a book, or maybe you have a book in your hand right now, all the pages, they're numbered, they have chapters and verses all broken up. You know, I... That didn't happen by accident, did it? 
But this is another example of an irreducibly complex system because if I take out a page or a whole book of the Bible, then guess what? It's not the Bible anymore as it was intended to be presented. We know that if we go into a library that all those books did not just happen, right? All that information that's contained in those encyclopedias, that didn't just happen. And yet we are supposed to think that our DNA just transformed over time and for, through billions of years. DNA is a huge problem for atheists and skeptics. Because it contains the information that's necessary for life. It's highly implausible that life as we know it is the result of sequence of physical accidents together with the mechanism of natural selection. We are expected to abandon this naive response, not in favor of a fully worked out physical, chemical explanation, but in favor of an alternative that is really a schema for explanation supported by some examples. This is what he continues on to say. The world is an astonishing place. And the idea that we have in our possession, the basic tools needed to understand it, is no more credible now than it was in Aristotle's day. That has produced you and me and the rest of us is the most astonishing thing about it. If contemporary research in molecular biology leaves open the possibility of legitimate doubts that a fully mechanistic account of the origin and evolution of life dependent only on the laws of chemistry and physics this can combine with the failure of uh, psychophysical reductionism to suggest that principles of a different kind are also at work in the history of nature. Principles of the growth of order that are in their logical form, teleological rather than mechanistic. I realize that such doubts will strike many people as outrageous, but that is because almost everyone in our secular culture has been browbeaten into regarding the reductive research program as sacrosanct and on the ground that anything else would not be science. This is an atheist that's saying that. He's saying we've all been browbeaten to accept Darwinian evolution, that you have to accept it, and anything else is just taken out and removed and given the label of irrational. And DNA just does not work within that mindset and that schema. Vision in the eye and how that works so quickly. We cannot explain it in many ways. At least anatomically, the eye is very well understood. And yet how it all works together where the pupil acts as a shutter, the lens which gathers light and focuses the retina, which forms the sharp image in the muscles of the eye which allow movement. What's interesting about Darwin, he knew about the eye in so many ways during his time and his age, but Darwin never offered any kind of explanation for a starting point for the evolution of the eye because it's an irreducibly complex system. He tried to show how all this would individually, components would evolve over time, but he never said how it would all work together over time and develop because it's irreducibly complex. It's like that mousetrap. If you remove one part of it, it all falls apart. 
Anatomy alone does not solve the question of how these complex systems work because these systems require multiple parts to work together. Evolutionary theory might be able to explain how each component part would come into existence, but it does not explain the system as a whole. And that's the problem with it. And as we began this evening, anyone who would deny the existence of God, anyone who would slander you for being irrational and illogical, the Bible says about the person who denies God, it would make the statement that there is no God. The Bible says that person is a fool. These arguments, they are intended to try to help us see that there is a logical, reasonable explanation for the existence of God. And that God does indeed exist. Tonight, I appreciate your good attention. I know we have gone long. And... What I want to encourage each and every one of us to do is to be able to articulate some of these ideas to try to show our friends and our neighbors that belief in God is reasonable. That it is something that you're not believing in silly myths that you are not mad, that you are perfectly in sound mind, using sound judgment in your belief in God. Faith is not blind. Faith is based upon evidence. And you look around and you see this world and the magnificence of what God has created and we recognize that it came from someone who is powerful and who is capable of putting it all in motion. And that one who is able to do that, He is the one who is able to save your soul. He's the one who is willing to forgive you of your sins, even when you transgress and break His commandments. This evening, if you need to come to recognize God's salvation, to be forgiven of sins, we want to encourage you to come tonight to make your life right with the Lord, and we want to help you do that. In whatever way you might need to respond to the Lord's invitation, would you come now as we stand and as we sing? Uh, I need-